listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. Um, So Martha, so I'm just going to take a quick poll. So we're all familiar with this story about... uh, Typically, we say Mary and Martha. It's rare that you ever hear Martha and Mary. It's interesting with, with people how that works in our lives, right? So I don't know about the rest of you, but in my family, we always say Carol and Mikkel. Like, we, we never say Mikkel and Carol. I don't know why that's the case, but if, if it's a, that's just the right way to do it? Okay, yeah, right. So I often hear Mary and Martha. I don't know if I ever hear Martha and Mary. How about you? Anybody? Mary and Martha or Martha and Mary? You hear Martha and Mary. Oh, interesting. You say Martha and Mary. Oh, okay. Yeah, that might be, there might be an extra agenda in there. I'm not sure. But let's, let's take a quick poll. Based on the story that we just heard Alan read, where Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better way, who would you rather be, Mary or Martha? So let's say, who would rather be Mary? Who would rather be Martha? All right, David, Angela is actually standing up with two hands raised because she is Martha. (laughs) Right. So I want us to slow down just a bit and listen to the very first line of that verse, that Jesus went to the home or to the house of Martha. Jesus went to Martha's house. We read over that so fast, and we just assume that that's not a significant detail. Although I think it is. It's not called, it's not called Mary's house. And we know their brother, right? Their brother doesn't get named here. But we know from other biblical stories about their brother, Lazarus, right? It's never called Lazarus' house. It's only called Martha's house. And sometimes in the Gospel of John, it says Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. Isn't that interesting? So in John's account, you get Martha and her sister and her brother Lazarus. That's who Jesus loved, these three people, Martha, her sister, and their brother Lazarus. So what's the significance that this was Martha's house? Well, in the ancient world, particularly in ancient Palestine and the Jewish culture, women wouldn't have owned property very often. That would have been a real anomaly for a woman to own the house, right? There's never a reference to Martha's husband. For that matter, there's never a reference to Mary's husband. There's never a reference to Lazarus's wife. Like, these these people, as far as we know, are single. And this particular single woman also owns a home where apparently her sister, Mary, and if we kept reading through the Gospel of Luke, since neither Matthew, Mark, or Luke make any mention of Lazarus, you finally have to get to the Gospel of John where Lazarus is mentioned. And even there, Lazarus never says a word. He's, he's completely mute in the story. We'll come back to that in a minute. You know, the series that we're going through this summer is Look Who's Talking. Had we been focusing on Lazarus today instead of Martha, we might have titled today's sermon, Look Who's Not Talking. <laughs> right. But we're going to focus on Martha, and we're going to call today's uh, sermon, um, We Don't Talk About Martha. 
right? Yeah. So for those of you who know the, the popular um, um, cartoon uh, movie, Encanto, yeah, yeah. yeah. We don't talk about Bruno, right? So we don't talk about Martha. Like, she's the one that we don't talk about. She's the one who apparently her particular gift mix uh, people found problematic, right? She's the one that would be ostracized. Even in this story, it's not Martha that's considered uh, having made the right choice. It's Mary. So the first thing I want you to note, though, is that Martha owns this house, and that's unusual, and that would have come with it a lot of responsibility, not just the typical responsibility that we often put off on women, both in our culture and other cultures, where we expect them to kind of do all things domestic. She would have carried those things, and she would have carried the things that, in traditional settings, put together with, with men. Like, she's, she's, she's responsible for the home. It's her finances. It's her uh, leadership. It's her um, care that's being given. Now, I do want to fast forward a bit into the Gospel of John because in that story, Jesus knows that Lazarus is sick, yet he delays going back to Jerusalem to see them. And after a few days, once Lazarus has had a chance to not just get sick but die, Jesus says, well, let's go now and see him. And his disciples are like, no, no. Let's don't go now. Like, A, you shouldn't go down to Jerusalem because last time you were there, which would have been John chapter 2, is when Jesus flipped over the tables, according to John's gospel, and Jesus almost got killed. So like, last time we were in Jerusalem, you almost died. Let's don't go back there. And he's like, we got to go back there because of Lazarus. And they said, well, Lazarus is dead. There's nothing you can do. And he says, Lazarus is not dead. He's only sleeping. And they said, well, if he's only sleeping, he'll wake up, <laughs> which I thought was a pretty funny statement. Yeah. And he's like, well, we're going. And then Thomas speaks up, and Thomas says, well, if you're going and you could die, we're going to go with you. Like, we're not going to let you die alone, right? And so they go, but they're late. They're very late to the game. And when they get there, Martha doesn't wait for Jesus to get inside her house, right? She goes out to him. Like, again, she's, she's the leader of the family, She's the one that has all the responsibility. She's the one that's going outside of her house to meet the rabbi, not someone they don't know, someone they know well, right? A close friend. Because of all the characters in the Gospel of John, there are only three of whom it says Jesus loved them. It says Jesus loved Martha and her sister and their brother Lazarus. So Martha goes out there and she confronts Jesus and she says, Master, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, maybe that sounds to you a little um, aggressive, maybe a little too assertive, like, like she's kind of accusing Jesus of something. But before we kind of overread that, I want you to hear it as a statement of faith. Master, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you realize how much belief that Martha has in Jesus to say such a thing, right? She knows who he is. She knows what he can do. She says, if you would have been here instead of somewhere else, Lazarus would still be alive. And so Jesus offers her some words of comfort, you know, kind of talks about a future resurrection, which is what sometimes we do when someone, you know, 
dies, whether they've died of old age, whether it's a tragedy, we try and comfort those who are in the midst of their grief by making some reference to some other final resolution. But in the moment, that never, that never makes us feel much better, right? Like if I've lost something now, I'm experiencing the grief of that loss. The absence is, is, is palpable, right? And words don't help much. And even Jesus' words to Martha, hey, there'll be a resurrection. She's like, like, I know there'll be a resurrection, but I miss my brother. And obviously Jesus misses him too, like Jesus cries. And Jesus goes on to say, not just giving the kind of glib, kind of platitude, hey, there'll be a resurrection. He makes a bold statement. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And she says, that's what I want to hear, right? That's right. You are the Christ, the son of the living God who has come into the world. Now, I want you to listen about just how powerful a statement that is. Like, we could be impressed with Martha saying, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But we should be really impressed now that she has made what we call the messianic confession. Because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the only person who says to Jesus, you are the Christ, is Peter. It's recorded in Matthew 16. It's, recruited, it's recorded in Mark 8. It's recu- recorded in Luke 9. And it's a big deal. When Peter says, you are the Christ, the story, all those stories shift. That's a major pivot point, that he's not just a rabbi. He's not this kind of new prophet. He's something more. He's the one we've expected, right? And that's always on the lips of Peter. That doesn't come on the lips of Peter in John's gospel. And it doesn't come on the lips of Martha. Excuse me, it doesn't come on the lips of Mary either. And, of course, it doesn't come on the lips of Lazarus because he didn't say anything. (laughs) It comes on the lips of Martha. You are the Christ the son of the living God who has come into the world. So, for David and for Angela, we should say we should talk about Martha and we should give her her due, right? She's the responsible one. She's the owner of the home. She's taking care of her sister and her brother never says a word. And that's just bizarre in the ancient world. It's just an interesting story. Now, we can say, I think, something about Mary as well. And not just about Mary, but also about Jesus. The fact that when Jesus has come to their house, that Mary is sitting at his feet learning. Like that, she's in the position of a disciple. She's in the position of a student, right? She's sitting at the feet of the rabbi. So, again, in in that culture, in that time, women were not typically disciples of rabbis. And so for Jesus to have a woman as one of his, you know, students is already kind of pressing the envelope. And for Mary to kind of make application and apply to be a student, right, to sit in the seat of a student is already saying something about her, too. So there, there is some good things. And Jesus is saying, this is a good position to be in, right, to be a student, to be a disciple of me. And, and he's right. It is. Right, so we want to, we want to kind of give, give that its due and also be kind of um, aware and knowledgeable um, that the inclusion of women into the circle of Jesus' disciples is a real thing. 
And we, we get it in other parts of the Gospels. There's towards the end of Mark, um, the 12, right, have all deserted Jesus. They've rid, they've, they've, they've rid which means they've run and hid. Um, they've run and they've hid because things have, have gotten sideways and uh, Jesus has been arrested, right? So you can't, there's not a male disciple to be found. But when Jesus is crucified at the cross are Mary uh, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the mother of some other people, and Salome, right? You're getting, you're getting this kind of collection of women at the cross. And we're told when they're at the cross, these are some of the women. This is part of the group of women that have been with Jesus since he was in Galilee. Well, I'm like, well, what women since he was in Galilee? Like, I've been reading the gospel. I, I hadn't seen a reference to them. But all of a sudden, now I find out that not only are these, these 12 guys who've been studying with Jesus and following Jesus, but there's also a group of women who have been with them from the beginning. And what's interesting about them is they're still with him even at the crucifixion, and even though they're the only ones with him, right? And it's that same three. Calm down, calm down. It's that same three that um, show up at the empty tomb, Right? according to the Gospel of Mark, right? It's, it's that same trio. So while you might have had Peter, James, and John, kind of the, the, the creme de la creme of the male disciples, you have uh, Mary, Mary, and Salome, who are kind of the creme de la creme of the female disciples. So we have all of this going on. So we have Martha's house, and we have Martha's Messianic confession. We don't want to discount Mary, though, Right? It's not because if we choose um, Mary, we have to be against Martha. If we choose Martha, we have to be against Mary. Those are kind of, that kind of binary is not at play here. We can appreciate both of them for who they are and for what they do. But it's interesting about Lazarus. Like, Lazarus doesn't even get mentioned in Luke's account, what Alan read for us, right? It was at Martha's house. She was working. Mary was learning. She was frustrated. She, you know, levied a complaint to Jesus, hey, get Mary to help. And he's like, well, Mary's doing a good thing, right? That's, well, what, what about Lazarus? Where did he go? Now, this is, uh, this is maybe a little um, unexpected, what I'm about to say. But I think if we were first century people, like if we were original hearers or readers of the gospel, um, the implications of this story would stand out more. It'd be more in the foreground. It's so much in the background for us that it could easily be missed. You just don't get references to uh, single women much. Like married women uh, in, the, in the New Testament, even if the married woman is the significant uh, player in the, in the relationship, when they're first introduced, she'll always get her husband's name first. Like uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla is this very active leader in the early church, and she's a leader in Rome. She's a leader in Corinth. She's a leader in Ephesus. She's taught Apollos, who goes on to be kind of one of this kind of great apostle guy. But if they're, the first time they're introduced to a community, they're always as introduced as Aquila, that's the, that's the husband, and Priscilla. But anytime you're talking about the ministry, it's always Priscilla and Aquila. Isn't that interesting? 
So it's like we get, we get stuff in the mail sometimes, and it's like, you know, depending on how formal it is, it's like Dr. Robert and Mrs. Waddell, or Dr. and Mrs. Robert Waddell, that's it, which of course makes Angela feel great, <laughs> right? How wonderful that she gets to be Mrs. Robert Waddell. <laughs> Isn't she blessed? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a way that we operate too, kind of the marginalization of, of women in our culture. But, but here, we find that Jesus isn't just um, acquainted with this family. Like, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, that's who he goes to see. Like, who are Jesus' closest friends in Jerusalem? Like, we know his close friends up in Galilee, right? He's in Capernaum, and he's got those 12 guys he always hangs out with. And there's Peter, and there's James, and there's John, but there's also Bartholomew and Thaddeus and Philip and Andrew. Like, we know that crowd. But when he goes south, when he visits family and friends in the greater Jerusalem area, in Bethlehem and Bethany, he's always going by to see this family of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And they seem to be, again, based, based on all typical norms of the time, two single women and their brother. And, and in the culture, again, if you had two single women and a brother, it would be more typical to list the brother's name first and then the sisters, at least the first time they're introduced. But it never comes that way. And Lazarus, again, never says a word. So what are possible historical scenarios whereby you would have two single women living together and their brother, but yet their brother is always listed last when their names are listed? It seems as though they are his caretakers. They're caring for him. Again, Scripture never records a single word that Lazarus says. It's possible that Lazarus can't speak or that his speech is somehow limited. Now, in scholarship, we would call this the epistemic privilege of the marginalized, right? That is, um, you can know something when you're on the margins that you can't know when you're in the center, because when you're in the center, when you're experiencing life like the world evolves around you, it's hard to know what it's like when you don't experience those good things. You might not know this about me, but I am a middle-aged uh, white guy <laughs> who is educated and middle-class. I'm a middle-class, middle-aged white man. Um, this culture is made for me. I'm, I'm, I'm the poster child of, of, of this place. Like, when, when I walk into a room, a little bit of gray, a nice beard, people say, doctor, and they're like, oh, well, well, he must be important. And I'm like, it's not that kind of doctor. It's not that important, really. <laughs> but there's a, certain, there's a certain privilege that I have that it's hard for me to be aware of because it's hard to be aware of where you are as opposed to where you're not. But if you're over on a margin somewhere, right, if you experience life either as a woman or if you experience life 
as um, anything that's not the center, right? Particularly if you, in this case, if you experience life with uh, special needs. That's, that's a life that you experience. That's a way that you're living that other people will never be able to quite understand because they're just not there. But there is something that you can experience over on the edge. This is the epistemic privilege. You can see things that people from the middle can't see. You can realize what it's like to be the other. You can realize the way that sometimes the, the deck gets stacked in certain ways. Where, again, if you're in the center, it's hard to see that. And that's what I love about this story, amongst the many things, is that it seems to me that Jesus' closest friends are a couple of single women and perhaps their disabled brother who otherwise would not have been deemed worthy or significant in the culture, and it's who he cares for the most. But if we back up and pause for just a minute, how could we imagine it be anything other than that? How could our Lord not have prioritized a family that the culture would have not prioritized? Well, of course that would be his closest friends. Of course that's the one who the gospel would say, you know who Jesus really loved? He loved this little oddball family. With all of their idiosyncrasies, with all the fact that they don't quite fit the ideal, right? That's who our Lord cares for. That's who he prioritized. And he knows them because he himself is one who embodies what it's like to be rejected, right? He lives a life that is wounded. In a beautiful book called The Wounded Healer, Henry Nouwen talks about Christ and he talks about our lives and our finitude and what it's like to, to experience, even, even if you typically experience the middle, you don't always experience it. There are times where you experience a little bit of the edge because we all experience hardships and we all experience some brokenness. Well, let me share with you a little bit of now and here. So he says this. He says, many people suffer because of the false supposition on which they have based their lives. That supposition is that there should be no fear or loneliness, no confusion or doubt. But these sufferings can only be dealt with creatively when they are understood as wounds integral to our human condition. Look, we are finite. We don't live forever. If we stay up too long, we get tired. If we don't eat, we get hungry. When we don't get the support we need, we get discouraged, right? When things get stacked against us, we can experience anxiety or depression. Like, we are fragile, and part of what we need to realize is our fragility is just part of what it means to be human. And we need to kind of like embrace that and not imagine that, that we don't have those things. And let that be a part of not only understanding who we are, but also helping us understand who others are so we can be more patient with them, so we can have more latitude 
for them. Um, now and continues, he says this. He says, through compassion, it is possible to recognize that the craving for love that people feel resides also in our own hearts. Right? They want to be loved, but guess what? We want to be loved. And he goes on to say, not only does the, 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 the love that they have or the craving for love they have, we have. He says this, that the cruelty the world knows all too well is also rooted in our own impulses. Through compassion, we also sense our hope for forgiveness in our friends' eyes and our hatred in their bitter mouths. When they kill, we know that we could have done it. When they give life, we know that we could do the same. For a compassionate person, nothing is alien. No joy and no sorrow. No way of living and no way of dying. This is what happens when we kind of embrace our own limitations and realize that both the capacity for love and the capacity for cruelty is not just out there, but it's in here. And that enables us to be with these people like Martha, like Mary, and even like their brother, Lazarus. And I think that's a message worth hearing, and that's a message worth uh, kind of contemplating, like sitting for a moment and just reflecting on what that, what that means, and what would that mean for me in my life? And who would I befriend? Or perhaps, who am I not befriending? We don't talk about Martha, but we need to. And we also need to talk about Mary and we also need to talk about Lazarus, who sometimes people don't even make it in the story. They're so far on the edge, they're so far on the border that their story never even gets brought up. Christ have mercy. Let us be a people like Christ who seeks them out and who befriends them. For we too, we are them. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.